This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim. And my name's Tom. And today we are doing our second Halloween film, which is Nosferatu. This is one of the earliest films, actually, of Murn Out to Survive. I didn't know this before doing some research for this episode, but this is his tenth film. But many of his earlier films, they have been lost to us, sadly. Yeah, and I think it's also um, a minor miracle that this film actually is with us anyway. Uh, I don't know if we're going to... Are we going to kind of talk about perhaps the... Uh, the kind of the backstory of it. Before we can start we get, with that, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I suppose we're in the age now where the, if you if you think about making a film based on a book or any kind of pre you know kind of established material, you have to go through the rigmarole of getting the rights. And things were slightly different in the twenties because on this one they just went and made it anyway, and obviously they changed lots of the names. But it was subject to a legal challenge, which was won by um, Bram Stoker's estate and every print of this film was ordered destroyed and it was only by a minor miracle that one of them one print actually survived of which managed to kind of keep this film alive and it became one of the very first early kind of um cult films i suppose in many ways that people were kind of sharing and kind of making other prints of and Hmm. the fact that we even got it i think is is something of a blessing I think it was sent out by mistake just bef- just after the the court order had been sent out, but um, it was too late to um, to call it back. And then people have been looking at this film since the like thirties, forties, fifties without even um, without proper distribution, just watching it in the cellars and putting it up in small theaters and whatnot. And thank God it was, um, it did survive because every one of those where we'd see kind of clips, we'd, there'd be pretty no doubt some stills left from it or some kind of production stills or something like that. And I'm sure people would just be kind of whining and crying about the fact that this film was gone. So just to save us from their kind of howls of despair, <laughs> I think it's a, it's a good thing that it, it, it's out there. And it's, it, for me, this is, it's one of those kind of films which we kind of talk about as being seminal in many ways as one of the films but when we discuss film mm. you know Nosferatu is one of those that constantly kind of crops up and uh, I found it quite interesting going back to it what, what were your kind of thoughts on kind of seeing it again obviously I had seen it before uh, it's one of those films that uh, you are subjected to when you are entering film studies um, just to give an historical overview of German cinema and how cinema got started. But I remember watching it at school and thinking uh, I could recognise the the elements, but I never got too much enjoyment out of the film. And that was also my experience going back to it the first time I watched it for this episode. But when I watched it for the fourth time, yes, four times, listeners, I gained some appreciation for it. Um, It took me a while and uh, there was some... I had to figure out what what was it with the film that didn't work for me and how could I, like, look away from that, those sort of elements that were uh, very distracting for me uh, and just appreciate what was really there. And, um, yeah, uh, I have to say that for this episode, it kind of turned for me uh, on the last viewing. Yeah, it was it's a strange one. Um, my introduction to Nosferatu came through watching the the rather brilliant two thousand film Shadow of the Vampire, mm. and I saw that, and obviously that's a film about the making of this film. And I realised that I hadn't actually seen Nosferatu, and I was actually at film school at the time, so I um, dug it out of the library, and much to my kind of, uh, I had a, a lecturer who was a massive horror fan, and he actually saw me kind of renting it out, and he was like, "Oh my god." 
tell me what you think tomorrow because this is an absolute masterpiece and all that kind of thing. And I watched it thinking, God, this film doesn't scare me at all in any way, shape or form. And I think I went into it thinking that's what it was going to do. And I was a little bit perhaps naive when I thought that. Hmm. And it, it sort of took me a, a time and a few viewings since to kind of establish what it is I like about Nosferatu. And it's the fact that obviously if you're going to go into it, it, the same attitude I had that you were looking for a scary film, I don't think this film will deliver that in any way, shape or form. What I found going back to it over the years is how very disturbing I find Nosferatu. And a lot of that comes as well from, and we'll talk about it in more detail, I think, this kind of post-World War One cinema, especially in its effect on kind of the Weimar cinema of the time. But going back to it again um, last night, I kind of, it's it was it was a, it was one of those screenings where I kind of obviously I was upstairs in the film cave and it was pitch black and I put it on and I went into it and and I tried to remember as the, as the film was rolling when was the last time I saw it and I think it must have been about two thousand and four when it was on BBC Two I believe one night and in that time since two thousand and four I kind of reflected on the fact that vampires have become quite ingrained in our society in so many ways this is you know we've had things like twilight i will openly admit i've seen one of the twilight films and that was quite <laughs> enough and I, I couldn't couldn't take it any longer but um films like true blood i'm sorry tv series is like true blood and it kind of got me thinking that kind of vampires has become sort of this kind of really appealing sort of lifestyle choice in mm. many ways for some people it's become quite sexy hasn't it and cool you know and and going back into this i suddenly watched it and i was like this film is horrible because there's no, it, it, there's there's nothing about um, Count Warlock or you know Nosferatu, whatever you want to call it, that that's appealing in any way. And I found it quite strange seeing a kind of a vampire film, obviously one of the very first made, a vampire film that makes being a vampire out to be really horrible and scary and nasty and not a nice lifestyle choice at all. Mm. This is not, this is not, this is not aspirational at all. And, and it was strange seeing it again because it was like, I thought, yeah, this is how a sort of, yeah, this is how vampires should be. They shouldn't be fucking sparkling when they're playing <laughs> baseball with their, you know, gap model family. And, you know, they shouldn't be kind of, you know, true blood style, kind of all kind of riddled up with angst and, you know, dating fairies and all this kind of crap. And I mean, even to an extent like um, Bram Stoker's track in the Copper film, which I do really like, actually. Um, mm. I was saying this to someone the other day. I, I still think that film holds up. Although, it, it, Keanu Reeves, every time he's, he's in it, he just seems to suck the life out of the screen. But I, I sort of love that film. But even that kind of makes vampires out. It, it's sexy, isn't it? You know, and kind of you've got Gary Oldman in full on camping it up mode. And, you know, it's this kind of campy sort of I don't know, sexy kind of thing they try to do vampires. And going back and watching this and I was like, he looks horrible. Count <laughs> you know, he's just like this kind of like ratty faced, horrible, disfigured sort of shell of a human being and i thought yeah this is what i want out of a vampire film and i had a i had a really good time with it last night seeing it again um it i sort of felt felt myself kind of um a little bit conscious of the fact that i was noticing issues with it this time hmm. quite a lot more than i had before and i was sort of thinking you know, how, to what degree do I kind of talk about them or do, to what degree kind of sweep them under cover? But I think as we kind of get into this discussion, I think we're going to have a few things to kind of say about it in that department. Definitely. Um, but before we get into that, uh, I think that people, they they know the story of Dracula, but as you were talking about which 
like what kind of story do they know do they know this like um Manau's version or they do, do they know the top browning and Lugosi's version or do they know the stoker diary version of the book um or do they know like copler's version or uh true blood or whatever um it, it's so so many different versions up through the cinema and you you could wonder what would have happened if Murnau's film had gotten to the states before uh Lugosi's uh creature came yeah well I mean, it, it, again I mean there's so many incarnations of this character isn't it? I mean you've got there to mention the hammer ones you know Christopher yeah. Lee you know and then they're kind of I mean some of them are virtually pornographic you know in that kind of that's the kind of the market they're going for yeah i think it would be interesting i i you know, what effect would this have had on wider culture had it got to america earlier and it had had a, a much wider release on its time I, I would like to have seen the influence it would have had on you know western cinema well a wider circle of western cinema certainly i think when we saw kind of the expressionism style kind of translate over to america but this kind of idea that kind of, of came when german directors emigrated from yeah. uh, but not really influencing them in the 20s and 30s as this probably would have done yeah i wonder how popular it would have been yeah. at the time as well um you know it, it's a tough one i mean to kind of talk about you know we've got germany coming out of the first world war and i'd be interesting to kind of think about what kind of contemporary audience would have made us because i mean that war was obviously it, it was an exercise in human suffering of which that was unlike anything that had ever come before. And I, you know, if you look at kind of Edward, it's, you know, kind of effects on kind of culture afterwards. I mean, like the screen by Edward Munch, I mean, yeah, that, that kind of internal kind of trauma, mm. I think that a lot of the world was going through. Yeah. That, that painting seems to kind of represent and kind of making head nor tail of, you know, kind of trying to contextualize it and how it kind of, fed its way into art and obviously Murnau and and his and his kind were kind of doing that with their films and they are these sort of very very disturbing fairy tales almost and they have that kind of look to them and then they're, they're not trying to be realistic they're trying to play in this kind of surrealist world mm. and it, it, it's interesting for me because when I watched Nosferatu it, it's the imagery of it is always quite kind of chaotic when it's outside of kind of things outside kind of you know in the open i mean there's kind of like yeah. there's always kind of seas kind of raging and stuff like that and it's very kind of inhospitable kind of countryside and it, it's it's a phenomenally bleak film when you get when you get into it and this sort of you've got kind of like rat infestations and disease and walls roaming the place and it's it's a film i think that kind of isn't trying to sugarcoat i mean because normally we, we we talk about one of the reasons why we talk about avatar as being so successful and I'm, I'm only kind of putting this out as a kind of a theory that i'm kind of ripping off of someone else but avatar came along when we were kind of at the depths of this financial depression and it was this massive piece of escapist cinema. Mm. And it was this kind of, you know, it was the first 3D films that people who, I mean, it was the first 3D film I ever saw at the cinema. And it was this sort of like, it was this, it became this experience that cinemas could go and get away from the kind of the, you know, switch the news on. It was always pictures of kind of economic devastation. And Avatar kind of fulfilled this need for escapist entertainment. And it kind of makes sense to me in a way that that, you know, that, that would perhaps account for its popularity. And in a way, I would have thought you come out of something like World War One, where you have you know, a generation lost. You have people who are scarred for life by this kind of huge cataclysmic event. I would have thought everyone would be rushing out to watch happy, clappy films. <laughs> and it simply isn't happening. 
And I think it's kind of interesting because people like Murnau, they must have seen the state Germany was in. I mean, you know, there was no economic, you know, the economic recovery didn't come along until a certain Mr. Hitler kind of turned up on the scene, really. And it's interesting that people, I mean, I think we talked about a little bit with them, that people you know, flock to see these films, obviously not in this case because it only, you know, because of what happened with the negative and things like that and the copies being burnt. But it's very interesting to me that how sombre and how depressing a film this is when you kind of think about, well, is it just kind of compiling people's misery at the time? <laughs> it does have this kind of fantastical feeling to it, this fantasy, but it's very nightmarish and it kind of um, has this um, dreamlike beauty to it, but in a garish kind of un unnerving kind of way. And it it's very much in the time of how portraying the oh, where the, he's portraying the german state as it is where everything is in decay and everything is under everything is under attack and under pressure and with the uh, diseases going on at a time that we will probably talk about later the illness of the pest and whatnot and you can definitely see the the influence that the time has had on this type of film, but I am surprised that the German German folk were like flocking to this type of cinema. Yeah, I, I guess that. I mean, in a way, I mean, would you would it just be kind of patronising in a way to make a film that was all kind of happy go lucky? Yeah. You know, look at this. You know, look how scummy we've got. You know, the influenza epidemic going on and. The country's on its knees and, you know, most of the young population are dead in, or disfigured or, you know, just scarred for life mentally by this huge war. But isn't life great, really? You know, let's, let's make a film in which everything works out all right in the end. <laughs> and I think people were just very, very, I, I think artists at the time were just, which I, I think themselves were trying to interpret this. Mm. this kind of event and what was going on and put it into their art. And, you know, it's, it's like anything, you know, Anyone who's tried writing or anything like that, if you're in a pretty dark place, you know, dark things tend to come out. And, you know, you, you take something like um, Martin Sheen's performance in Apocalypse Now. That was a man who was going through the worst type of personal turmoil when that film was being made. And it's all there in his performance. Mm. You, know, you can see it. And it, and I, I think it's the same way. You know, I, I think this this film has been influenced by that world. And it's just little tiny little things that this, this film does that kind of reinforces the kind of this as you say, this kind of dreamlike horror to it. For example, when they send the um, horse carriage to pick up Hutler, mm. Hutter, they've got these kind of horrible, scary black hoods on them. Mm. And he kind of overcranks the camera, so the, the, the kind of the carriage moves in this kind of really kind of fast and kind of strange way. And it just it just throws you off a little bit. And I mean, obviously, one of the issues that I have with, with characters in this type of film is, for Christ's sakes, why do they bother going to these locations? <laughs> I mean, the warning signs are there, are they not? It's just, I mean, and, you know, it's little things like the clock that's got a skeleton on it chiming. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like everything in that, everything about should be saying, don't go, don't go. Yeah. And yet, you know, they still go. Oh, I mean, it's a horror film trope, isn't it? But yeah. it's just these little things that make Nosferatu, just these little touches that unnerve you and unsettle you. And I think it's a master... In, in that case, I think it's so subtle. It's, it's, all, it's masterful in how it does that. Mm. Um, yeah, it's much more about... It's not a horror film per se. It's much more about the, the visual elements and the atmosphere. And uh, one thing I noticed that there's a surprising amount of like on-set photography or um, 
outside photography. Uh, there's mm. not much like clinical studio surroundings, but he's he's moving very much around the landscape of Germany. And I found that kind of surprising in such an early film that when when we think of like early cinema, we usually think of studios and being able to control the elements, controlling the light. But he's attempting to go out and capture some sort of some sort of perspective or his his um kind of molding of an alternative germany well it's not a very i mean this isn't a kind of this isn't a germany that we see in an industrial germany is it it's it's very it's it's i mean even the town that it's in i mean is very very uh sparse and i mean there's some there's some shots i mean of what it's sort of like a hillside and you can see that the sun going behind behind the clouds it's got that kind of red tint to it Hmm. and obviously it's kind of implying that there's you know kind of bloodshed and things like that but it looks like a very wild country yeah. Um. Naturally, I think that's the. You know, and like I said about the kind of the, the seas look very angry, and it's it's this kind of this 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 festering menace that I think he's trying to capture in the nature that in that we see, and I, I think that's in, I think ties into how we kind of meant to see Nosferatu because I was thinking when I was watching it how Count Orlok he's a completely apolitical character. This isn't sort of some sort of metaphor for anything other than he's just he's that you know his character is his character he's i don't think there's any trying to kind of like make any kind of wider statements about society or anything like that and i think it all this kind of wild countryside i think it ties into the fact that all looks very much like a natural abomination mm. as opposed to being some you know we, we, we talked about mabuse you know they, they, this is character who's, who's kind of been molded by society and nosferatu skews all that and i think it kind of brings it back to a very elemental film where, like you say, we were seeing the countryside and we're seeing this kind of, you know, he's got this you know, affliction that appears to be natural. And in that way, I think that's another reason why I quite like Nosferatu, because it's very much a film where it's it, it's not, I don't think it's, it's not sermonizing or anything. I think it's more interested in telling a story than it is kind of teaching us a lesson, really. Yeah, it's it's kind of plugging into that, that basic fear archetype where. Or like he he doesn't turn any humans to vampires like we've seen on later films, but he simply out and out kills them and he kills suddenly and there's no like discrimination between the healthy and the sick that no one is safe. So many of us have interpreted this kind of figure as a disease like the embodiment of the flu or even someone as thought of like foreign invaders or even others have thought about it in terms of sexuality or even uh, both conservative or progressive sexuality it could be seen as ebola today so yeah. it's like this archetype of fear that we can plug almost anything into yeah and there's always i mean society like like I say society always has something that scares the shit out of it yeah it's it's always there I mean, we've we've had kind of various moral panics over the years, especially in Britain. You, know, it was anyone wearing a hoodie a few years ago was going to mug you and kill you, and we had this kind of feral population that were just waiting to attack and strike you in your home. And we had a series of films, um, you know, Eden Lake. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Uh, no, um, I haven't. It's a Michael Fassbender film. It is one of the most traumatic, horrible experiences I've ever had watching a film. And it's a it is a really really good film, but it plays on it played on that kind of fear of youth, 
that we have. And now, of course, I remember it was bird flu a while back. You know, hmm. if a swan so much as looked at you in the wrong way, that was <laughs> it. You know, this, there was going to be this huge apocalypse. And now, of course, we have Ebola, like you say. And, you know, there's this sort of kind of thing, don't worry, it's it's in Africa, it's not going to get here. You know, white people are fine, don't worry about <laughs> it. And Nosferatu, it plays on that. It, I, I think to me, it plays on that fear that if you leave your, cup, your wardrobe door open at, when you go to bed, and you look at it just before you fall asleep, you think, I'm going to shut that. Mm. And it's that very kind of primeval base fear that there is something out there that doesn't like you and wants to harm you. And it's brilliant, I think, how this film plays on that because it is literally, I mean, there's scenes, you know, um, you know, when Ellen, when Ellen Hutter, she, you know, she's sitting up in bed looking kind of zombified out the window or moving towards. And it's scary because it has this, you know, this, this creature has this effect over humans and there's nothing we can do about it. And I think that's quite interesting because, you know, most um, vampire films, we're used to, we're used to the rules, aren't we, being established. They can, they, they get killed by this, that and this, and, yeah. you know, stake through the heart and, you know, or, or not in the case of Twilight when they just sparkle, but, you know, get them out in the sun, it's curtains. There's nothing like that in, in Nosferatu. It doesn't sort of say, you know, it, it there is no Van Helsing character, is there? No. Then Van Helsing's the man who's going to save us all, you know, and he he knows what to do with these things. There's nothing like that in Nosferatu, so it's phenomenally bleak, really, in many ways. Yeah, we we are given like this ray of hope at the end when Ellen is the one that saves us, but up until that point, we we really don't know how this evil will be defeated and how anyone can stop this character. So it's this incredibly. Uh, despairing feeling that you have when you're watching the film where you feel like um, how they're going, even though, even though Hutter will escape the castle or get away from this uh, creature, he will still be out there kind of doing his thing and uh, there's no stopping him really. And there's no backstory to Warlock. And I don't know whether that came from the fact, I don't know if they were you know, mildly concerned about the copyright or what have you. I didn't, you know, perhaps they were just kind of, perhaps they thought if we kind of, uh, obviously change his name from Dracula to Orlock and you know change a few more things about it. they might leave us alone when it comes to kind of <laughs> things but yeah, we don't know where you know how he was created where he's from I mean that's the thing about um the, the Stoke version and most of the versions is we try and make vampires incredibly sympathetic mm. you know they like, you know, especially the Copeland one I mean that's a it's a, it's a it's a love story you know it's a first and foremost that film's a love story mm. And it, you know, you're meant to be kind of moved by it. We don't have that with with Orlock. I mean, he's we're not quite sure of his intentions towards Hutter. I mean, and you've got that kind of wonderful scene where we see his kind of claws kind of coming over her in shadow. Mm. And there's it's the implication where you know is he going to kind of bite her neck, kiss her, rape her? You don't know, and that's the thing I I find so kind of scary about it. And you have kind of people trying to make sense of it around her, you know. They're sort of saying, oh, you know, she's a hysterical woman and it's, you know, silly girl, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, the normal, give her a sedative and she'll be fine in the morning type kind of thing. And it's not, it's this thing that's hundreds of miles away that's somehow infecting her soul. And, uh, it, it's, it's a form of witchcraft. And really, everyone's scared of witchcraft, you know, even though it's utter nonsense. It's still kind of a scary sort of subgenre of, you know, <laughs> of uh human fear that it kind of plays into and um yeah i, I think i think in by by almost not giving him any kind of backstory or context i think orlock becomes slightly more scary anyway mm. um you mentioned that orlock he has some sort of control over these humans over ellen and also over knock that 
little leprechaun that is running around and but it, it seems that this uh, this realtor loony that is we we meet him early in the film and he's like the boss of this hussar and he seems to be like office rocker from the get go i don't know if you noticed it but when he's looking at the documents they're written in like hieroglyphs okay yeah i noticed that so he's he's being turned at that moment yeah. Um, I don't know whether he's like always been like kind of where you know the the, the hieroglyphs from Orlok have that effects on him or not. Or yeah, 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 if you read, you become under his spell. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's kind of a crazy guy anyway. Yeah. I don't know if he's kind of quirky crazy or he's just been kind of turned over to full on crazy. Um, you know, again, it's not really explained, but I quite like the idea that you know these kind of these these letters or what have you, you know, just simply by reading them, you kind of become under his spell. Like and, Mabuse, you know, the film, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that kind of like they can have that kind of effect, and don't forget, I mean, it's you know, it's a silent film as well. It's not about being subtle. No, no, no. I mean, um, yeah, it's, you know, he's he's there to serve a very kind of specific purpose, which is to be crazy and kind of, you know, like you say, you kind of run around. I don't know if it was kind of seen as almost as a comic relief type character. <laughs> I don't know, but no, you say, say, I, 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 that was the first time I noticed actually when I watched it this time. I saw those, I saw the letter, and I thought, oh, hang on a minute, it kind of made sense to me a little bit. Yeah, um, and the other we mentioned like this. This is a silent film. I've read different reviews, all like some seem to be agreeing with the uh, the view that this is an expressionistic, like the early ages of German expressionism. Others seems to think that this is more of a end of romanticism, not quite expressionistic. Where do you kind of fall on that? Do you have any views on that? Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually, because it's... It's, I mean, obviously, loads of it's been shot on set, but the sets are kind of, they're not as far out there, crazy, crazy. Very, as... very simple sets. Very... Yes, but, but I mean, in the fact, by their, by their simplicity, they're noteworthy. Yeah. You know, they're very kind of clean looking, aren't they? And I mean, there's some long corridors, but for the most part, you know, they're very, um, I suppose that they're an attempt at realism. I mean, certainly when he, you know, there's some, you know, he's, in the, he's in the castle when he's trying to escape, he just looks like a normal building, mm. you know, with the kind of things. And... I think, like you say, when it's, it's interesting, you kind of make that point when you come back to you look at the sort of the um, the outdoors, you know, the amount of natural scenes and stuff like that. And I, I think I'm sort of probably falling on the, on the line that this is kind of it has DNA of expressionism in it, but I wouldn't kind of classify it as a full on German expression expressionist piece of cinema. I think, mm. like I said, I think it, it hints at that, but I think it's. It's a little bit more, dare I say, kind of real in a way. You know, it's not. I don't think it's trying to be that far out there visually, as you know, we know Murnau does get. Yeah, uh, I would agree. I think uh, you can definitely see expressionism in terms of acting, where the the actors are definitely way over the top. Like Max Schreck, this is an iconic expressionist performance with his eerie movements. It's like this anorexic, otherworldly look. Uh, where he's extremely like limited in his movements and also in his screen time by the way but it seems to have this like dominating effect where it's yeah i can't really explain it other, in other words than like otherworldly otherworldly performance well i i think first and foremost it's a fantastic performance yeah um that's yeah that's the first thing i would say about his his character in this film because monsters have a tendency um if unless they're done well they have a tendency just to be a man in a suit 
or someone with lots of makeup on and he has he obviously has kind of you know he looks completely different kind of personality but there's a real everything he does every movement he makes every everything he does on screen and it's obviously by no means subtle but it it does get from the screen to the viewer i think it kind of bridges that gap where it does become quite kind of almost like i don't know i I say method acting in a way and obviously shadow of the vampire goes into that i mean what a brilliant i really do recommend if you haven't seen shadow of the vampire watch it it really is a brilliantly great fun film that kind of gives this film a a little kind of mythology of its own in a way Mm. and when you kind of see him and his you know his body is so disfigured he has those horrible claws and that kind of look and he sort of looks when he's moving towards the camera like he himself is a bit unsure of kind of what's going on it's not he's not a powerful kind of physical person it's just all in that kind of that movement and those looks and the way he kind of holds his hands up to his chest and it's little touches like that that just twist it from reality that make it something completely different but also give it that kind of he is a human but just a very disfigured and diseased one mm. and i think that's what I, I mean when i was saying when i was going back to it it was strange to see a vampire film that when the character looks so ill and horrible and emaciated and sick and in a way that's kind of perhaps i think i've decided that's how i like my vampires and <laughs> i certainly think his performance is uh you know match performance is uh, he just nails it i think yeah definitely more of this like haunted hunched grotesque creature that lurks about and none of the romanticism that we we can see today but murnau himself he's also experimenting with the film with type of lighting even uh, angles and even like using different colors to reveal what type of day it is and it also adds this sort of atmosphere through the film and especially one scene i've never seen color used in in a black and white film in this way but where the um the light kind of goes out and changes from like orange tint to a blue tint and it it seems like he's thinking of colour uh, back in these days. Yeah, it must have been so frustrating for people like Murnell because you could probably tell that their minds were just you know racing as to the things that they could do. Yeah, I mean, there's not much camera movement in this film. I mean, it's all you know, it's all very kind of static and things like that. And you, you could imagine how you know he'd be thinking, "God, if only I could do this." And we, you see that in Sunrise, don't you? Mm. When he, you know, obviously he kind of had a bigger budget and was able to kind of. You know, get that camera going around, and you can see what kind of having fun he was having in that. Yeah. So I think it, with um, Nosferatu, when he's kind of playing around with the color tints and the kind of the optical effects, that's someone who's probably realised that you know, the limitations of the medium they're working in at that time mm. are that they can't do all these things. So instead, he's kind of choosing to kind of muck around with tints and you know, like say uh, some of the angles and really making the best of the tools available and in that respect i i think it's you know something it is one of those early films where you can kind of go and look at and see this is it, you can see the beginnings of modern cinema i mean you know going from a wide shot to a close-up you know and you you, you, hmm. you know exactly what the kind of the characters are looking at i mean there's that bit where they're looking at the fly going into the venus fly trap and you see them all stood around and it cuts to it and stuff like that and obviously you know that it's cutting into the scene and it's that very kind of little touches like that. And a lot of directors at the time weren't doing things like that. It would be a lot more kind of theatrical in its presentation. You'd have, you know, kind of characters. Uh, you'd have that kind of proscenium arch. And it would act like a stage, 
you know, on a play. And when, whereas Murnau seems to be understanding the language of cinema and, you know, using kind of, you know, cuts for effect. Yeah. And it, it's, it's fascinating to me to see, because obviously we kind of attribute, um, you know, uh, D.W. Griffith was really kind of kind of going in, you know, cutting in scenes of editing and stuff like that. But I think Murnau was someone who understood the language of cinema and was probably way ahead of his time. And it's just, you know, it's a shame that he, uh, yeah, he couldn't have kind of gone on a little bit longer, you know, into the kind of the 40s, 50s and 60s where he really could have had a good play around. Yeah, the way he kind of shoots, especially the outdoor scenes, it seems to be a little bit more, he utilises uh, more setups in the outdoor scenes than he does in the um, in the indoor uh, stage scenes. I don't know if that is due to restrictions or whatever, but he definitely utilises more setups, more frames, uh, varying from uh, close-ups to medium close-ups but e- everything is very very still very like i read um it's interesting that you mentioned sunrise i read bill gabiri's um article in this film and he called like sunrise a master of cinematic movement while this is like a masterpiece in paralysis mm, yeah i mean i totally agree with with, with that statement and again it's interesting um when you go back, I mean, I don't watch a great deal of silent films and, you know, early cinema. I have to be brutally honest with you. Every year I say to myself, right, this is going to be the year I'm going to watch more. And I, and I don't. And, I, you know, I, it's, I would love to kind of be an expert in, in this arena. And I'm really not, unfortunately. I can't kind of hold, I, I'd hold my hands up and say it's, just, it's, a, it's an area of cinema I'm partially ignorant on. Although I, I, probably, I think I've probably seen a lot, you know, a lot of silent, silent films. But when I watch this and it, it's those kind of those static frames and sometimes I can feel the mask of pretense slipping from me a little bit. I think, oh, this is a little bit boring sometimes, <laughs> you know, when I'm watching these types of things. And, yeah, you know, I don't, I'm not ashamed to admit it. That's how I feel. But with, I found in recent years, the more I've watched, the more I've kind of got over this and the more I sort of look into the frame. And especially with someone like Murnau, because they fill it with interesting things. Or even if it's just looking at kind of where a character's sitting and the kind of the environment around them, and there's something you can take in. Mm. You know, it's like looking at the scenes in the kind of the insane asylum, and you can see kind of like graffiti etched on the wall and just little bits like that. And these little things he does really kind of remind us of kind of the work of nature. And it's like cutting to kind of, I think it's like a spider killing something on its web. And it's just yeah, these little, yeah. little things like that. And, um, little little things like that that go on that kind of you know hold your attention and, and really kind of elevate this i think from being you know something to someone more sublime perhaps than you know you might be you know, the younger me would have probably watched this and gone god i'm bored now and i you know, i seem to remember a few people saying that they'd, it was an effort to get through someone at work said oh god it's an hour and a half of <laughs> silence and stuff like that and you know this time i, I just remember I, I just recall last night thinking how kind of into it i was yeah, without having to make that much effort, as it were. Yeah, the more I watch Suns, the more I appreciate um, like every cut that that is made. It seems to have more of an intention behind it than many of the yeah. cuts that we see in modern age. Yeah, I mean it's it's digital editing, isn't it? Now, I mean, I was re-editing something today at work, and you know, drag, drop, yeah, push, pull, bang, it's there. You know, it it takes seconds. I mean, the person I was actually editing with was like, "God, I didn't know it was this quick." You know, I think they thought it was this sort of. It took time, and. It, you know, in, it was very much a, 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 a real kind of physical process, mm. you know, right up until, obviously, until kind of digital editing take over. But in those days, you know, you think about the kind of the film as well. Film was a very volatile thing in those days. You know, it was film, film was dangerous. Mm. You know, I mean, it was, you know, it, 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 was, it was something which could, you know, cause a disaster and frequently did. 
and uh, you know it had to be handled with care literally and i think filmmakers were way more conscious of what they were doing and the amount kind of the waste they were trying to cut down on and it's yeah from that from that respect i mean it's just little things like um when Hutter's wife's on the beach and it's kind of you can see this the waves in the background and these kind of like they look like crosses in the sand i didn't notice that yeah, they look like it looks like she sat. I don't. I was trying to work out. You wouldn't have a graveyard on a beach, would you? Because it's not exactly you can see the bodies down for very long. But it was just it was just little things like that. You know, I was noticing. You know, what what was his intention when he put those crosses there? Are they yeah. kind of a reminder of morality, or you know, is he sort of suggesting that her numbers up or something like that? Are they a sign of danger? And just to be able to kind of think like that, you know, because there's no way they're there just out of whimsy. Yeah. They're there for a very specific purpose. And I think one about when the comp- compositions are this so measured and assured mm. everything in there has to be in there for a reason yeah. of which you need you know it's been placed in there to to be looked at and to be kind of digested and i think that's like you say when you try and watch a film like the avengers and it's just this wall-to-wall noise and you don't know where you're looking in those films i i find i don't know what to look at there's so much going on yeah. the screen is so busy and full of information and carnage and to go back to like something that takes place at a lot slower pace where you feel like every aspect the director has complete control of and you can't help as a lover of film be sucked into them i have an issue with the pacing at times uh there's a specific moment uh i notice it where hutter is escaping the castle from that point on until until about he arrives the city. There's too many I feel like there's too many superfluous scenes. He has some uh before that where there's there's like it's this werewolf thing that runs yes. about and it has nothing to do with the story other than setting up that the nature is dangerous. But I really I really don't need nature to be dangerous to be afraid of Warlock, you know? Yeah, um, it's it's one of those. Yeah. A lot of, but uh, no, not I... only that, but it seems like that is an that is an image she's going for throughout the film. Because another scene that I feel is really unnecessary is the one with the professor, where he's holding this lecture about the the Venus fly, and yeah. he's also talking about this sort of um, you're watching this kind of virus. Um, entrapping something and everything like the urgency of Hutter coming to the city it totally comes to a halt yeah and i mean i i would agree to an extent um it's 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 that scene it's the scene in the film where it cuts to the tech geek working out how to crack the code do you know what i mean it's that sort of moment or it's the you know the scene in the matrix where you know, we cut back to the guy on the ship who's kind of cheering when they've done something and things like that. It's just totally unnecessary. It kind of throws you out of mm. it. And I think they're trying to—he's trying to build suspense, isn't he? You know, we've got this sort of race against time. You've got Orlock on his way to Britain. You've got you know Hutter trying to escape, and it's a way of kind of bridging the two, I suppose, just but, giving it that little, yeah, just just ch- chucking it in there for good measure. So, it, yeah, it, you could possibly, you could probably lose it, but I see from a kind of a filmmaking perspective why he has decided to include it. But one thing I would much rather see that Nock is going even more crazy and that Nosferatu's powers is like they're taking even more control of Nock in that way, showing that Nosferatu's powers are growing over the city and this like looming presence coming closer and closer. And how is Nock incarcerated? It seems like suddenly in a scene he's he's been 
he's going crazy and then he's been incarcerated and we get nothing of that. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. Yeah, it, it, it's, it is a sort of a jumping sort of. It 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 asks you to fill in the blanks. I think yeah. it perhaps it's playing on the fact that people would have been familiar with the source novel. Yeah, probably. I think yeah. that I, th- I think that I think it's taking that for granted in a way. Um, you know, it's it's one of those, isn't it? Where I'm sure people who who if it had come out time, they'd have gone, oh, it's not as good as the book. <laughs> you can imagine, yeah, you, know, you can imagine that reaction, can't you? People going, oh, come on, it hasn't got the vampire brides in it, and. It hasn't got, where's Van Helsing? You know, where yeah. are these characters who I love? And it, it's kind of gone that and it kind of strips it back to a very sort of, it strips it back in so many ways. Mm. And I'm sure there's probably kind of budgetary reasons why they couldn't go the whole hog. And yeah, again, it, it's that thing, isn't it? Where we, we sort of talk about Nosferatu as sacred film text. And so to, to even suggest that there might be some bits <laughs> of it that aren't, you know, shouldn't be in there. You know, we probably sound like, you know, absolute heathens or Luddites, you know, depending on things. But, you know, I, I think it's one thing, actually, uh, you know, just kind of on kind of a slight tangent as well. I have found myself very past couple of years where I sort of like think I, films which I'm supposed to kind of go crazy over and love and revere. I found myself being a lot more critical of them in many respects. And I don't think it's sort of kind of arrogance or snobbism, but I think sometimes we, we were a little bit afraid, I think, in the film world to sort of be completely honest yeah. when it comes to our feelings on films. And I've noticed it a few times where people just turn around, it's a masterpiece. I mean, the, the most contemporary example I can think of has to be The Dark Knight. I've never heard a film banded around so much as this classic as this modern classic piece of cinema and i always kind of get these kind of looks as i stop trying to cause an argument when i say the dark knight is not a great film it's a very very good one but to to say it's great you know and and to sort of dare suggest that it might not be suddenly kind of (laughs) has people kind of raging at you and it's interesting you know i I, you know i think it was hunter um, when I talked about int- intolerance as just being one of the worst experiences of watching a film I've ever had, you're like, what? How could you say that? It's just kind of like, well, I'm sorry, you know, I can only react on what I'm there. And you know, if there are the scenes that kind of seem a little bit superfluous in this, it, you know, you shouldn't be ashamed to say that you think they're a little bit of super- superfluous. Sorry. Another thing you mentioned that people in that day and age would probably said the book was better, but I feel like. There's plenty of text in this film, to say the least. I feel like this is suffering from the same thing that um, Carl Theodor Dreyer's uh, Vampire uh, suffers from, where there's like this long passages of writing from the diary of sorts. Uh, there's, the, the structure is kind of like this diary that is written or told to us. And I feel like that could be excised completely from the film. I wouldn't miss a single beat. I would understand everything that is happening in the film. Uh, yeah. It feels very like unnecessary. And again, it stops that kind of sense of urgency in the flow of the film. The diary, yeah, the diaries don't really add much, do they? No. The, I, th- I feel like the... the book where Ellen is reading, that's fine because that we need that to like understand what is happening and uh yeah i mean joking aside i think having a a van helsing type character in it may have helped this film yeah a little bit you know having it more kind of you know they kind of this this quirky kind of crazy dude who lives in the town who knows what's kind of going on give some exposition to a character yeah you know you know and it's the what the what the uh what's the girl's name in inception 
uh, Ellen Page. I can't remember. And, and, yeah, yeah, the character. Though. Her entire role in that yeah. question, in that film, is to ask the questions we're asking. Oh, so annoying. It's like, what? What? What is that? What? what how does that work? <laughs> That's her job. That that is the entire point of her character, and it, it, the, in a way, the film can't really function without her because. If, if she wasn't in there, you'd be sitting there going, well, how's that work? I don't understand this. But because she's sat there going, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> what happens if this happens? And he goes, well, if that happens, this will happen. We go, ah. So then we understand the internal logic of Inception. That's how that film works. Mm. And I think perhaps Nosferatu might have benefited from someone like that going, well, hang on, folks. I think I can see what's wrong with her. I think it's a case that in 1721, <laughs> something similar happened. And I think this might be the return of all, of, uh, you know, start shitting yourself, folks, because something very bad's about to happen. Oh, is it really? Yeah, it is going to happen. You know, that type of thing. If it had that type, rather than the kind of the diary entries and someone sort of begging, you know, H- you know, Hutler not to go, you know, don't go. It's going to be, you know, this, this is just a bad place to go. Hmm. And it's yeah, it, it might work a little, a little bit better. It might have a sense of urgency to it, you know. Perhaps if we knew there were ways we could defeat Orlock, but of course, you know. And I did, and I know it's really childish, but I did laugh a little bit when he's just walking through the town with the coffin. <laughs> I know it's sort of you know it's it's obviously yeah it's meant to be kind of the symbol of death and stuff like that, but it was like ah oh, yeah. I just go for a stroll with the coffin, you know, walking through. And it's obviously this kind of abandoned town and it's, there's nothing much going on there. What, but... it, what is it going to do? He's walking with a coffin and he's looking around the corner. Oh, no, he's only going to watch me. What if someone walks by? Is he going to, like, vanish no. with a coffin on his arm? I know, like, I know. That's where kind of thing, going? I know, but I mean, this is it, isn't it? Yeah. We're, we're, being, we're, we're, we're applying our kind of modern, snarky, internet twat. <laughs> kind of mindset to this type of thing, and you know, yeah, and you know, that, that being aside, you know, take that image out. If you saw someone like that walking down the road now with a coffin, I can pretty much guarantee you would absolutely <laughs> shit it. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I was scaring myself to death the other day looking at um, Halloween costumes from the 1920s during the Dust Bowl, mm. and it's just kids with a paper bag on their head with holes cut oh, out. It, it, it was, it's horrific. And you know, like there's what, one. Was that film like, uh, the town that wouldn't die or something? I don't know. This, I mean, these were actual pictures, and it was the most simplistic costumes. I mean, one was literally um, there were there were kids with like cardboard pumpkins on their heads, and I, I was on the brink of tears. You know, in its simplicity, <laughs> and I think you know, seeing this again. I mean, again, I'd love to know how scared people were of it. I don't. You know, modern sensibilities don't render. Nosferatu, a scary film. It simply isn't. I think it's a disturbing film, first and foremost. And I think it's disturbing because it it doesn't scare us with gore and jumps and frights. I think it it, it does that. Like we said, it's that thing that's out there that we can't understand, that that, that isn't explainable, that doesn't have any kind of political or kind of religious-based agenda to it. It's just out there somewhere and it might want to do something very mean to us. And I think that's what... No, I think that's the that, that that's my kind of angle into the psychological aspect of what makes Nosferatu such a great horror film. And I use the kind of word horror in a kind of very loose umbrella term. Yeah, it, it is interesting. You, you mentioned religion. It is all but absent from the picture. And considering mm. how, like, integral that, uh, religion is to later vampire films. It's interesting with you can like the using Buffy with the vamp uh, with the crosses that is yeah. uh, throughout those uh, that TV series and 
this film, it, Nosferatu, compares vampires more to like this this nature with the 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 Venus fly um, scenes, and there's some sort of like spiritual, telepathic communication and domination. This is more like supernatural. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, when you have the kind of the the symbol of the cross in in vampire films? Because it's obviously kind of the, what the cross represents is this kind of this purity. Mm. And this kind of like you know, there's no you know, no stronger power on earth than this divine symbol. And in Nosferatu, we don't have that. We, it, yeah, like I say it's religion is completely absent. And in a way, it makes the population even more helpless yeah. to this creature. There's nothing. You know, God's not on their side. You know, it, it's just this thing, this this abomination that's come out of nature that's going to attack them and do things to them. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. And uh, yeah, again, I, I I wonder how deliberate this. I haven't read Dracula. I was actually going to download the audio book of it because there's a new dramatization come out, and I think Kenneth Branagh narrates it. Yeah. And I've really and I thought, you know, what well, I might download it, but I, I can't remember in that if if they news crosses. I, I, it doesn't. I uh, it doesn't ring. No, I, I don't think so. I, I read it like a couple of years ago. Um, it was oh, yeah. Um, it was quite a chore to get through. Uh, I'm I'm really not liking that type of diary uh, setup for a book. Uh, that is something that mm. I struggled really with. But uh, I can't remember seeing any crosses in the film. Not in the book, reading any crosses. Yeah, I mean, he's, I mean, in a way, actually, he does do something in the film, isn't it? Because the, guy, the old guy goes around the town drawing crosses on people's. I, I think he's yeah. Crosses, or is it just marking an X? Or I don't know. Yeah. I, they, 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 I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they look more cross yeah, than X's, that's true. I think. I don't know. But, I mean, there is that sort of... There's a plague going around, isn't there? That, that is a question I had. Uh, why doesn't, like, Nosferatu... He, he's coming to the city to find Ellen, right? Because he saw yes. a picture of her, and yeah. he decided, yeah, I'm going to rape her. Then why, when he comes to town, he, he simply hangs around and people die? We don't see him doing any of the killing... And I think the, I think I think what the implication is he's bringing the plague with him. I think whilst he's getting nearer and nearer the town, the more the plague yeah, is destroying. When we the town. after we see him um, carrying the coffin around, and then he walks, he walks through the uh, the building, or it, like through through the wall of the building that he's occupying, the one across from uh, Hutter and Ellen. I run, I know this is really nitpicky, and but I'm just. I th- it felt like there was a couple of days where he was just waiting or something. I- I- I'm but, not not quite sure. Well, I mean, he lives in a box. I mean, you know, he's going to enjoy getting out and about, isn't he? I yeah. mean, we know he's a kind of an abomination, you know, and he's a crazy kind of monster, you know, perhaps just wants to go for a bit of a stroll around, you know. I mean, no, I don't know. Um, again, it it's it's the affliction that I think comes in a lot of kind of horror films and, and scary films. They don't quite know what to do in the last third a lot of them. Mm. And they kind of built up this kind of tension and these scenarios and these situations. And then when they get there, it's a bit like, right, what do we do now? And yeah. I think perhaps it's kind of, you know, what what do we see him? You know, like you say, what, what, what's he up to? We don't really know. Is he just walking around being scary and a monster? I think it kind of fulfills that kind of, mm. I think it ticks that box more than it does any kind of real sort of sense that you know, he's there for a specific purpose, yeah. as it were. In the end, Ellen finally she she likes reads from the diary that he needs to drink blood from this pure woman, uh, and that that is what I feel like Ellen represents. She's this pure 
um, especially in Hutter's eyes, she's this pure um, virgin that he could never be sexual with, but it's his wife and it's his girlfriend and whatnot. But for Orlok, she represents this kind of mystical, dark... It seems to be that they share some sort of... They share some sort of similar or forbidden knowledge, and he, well, he views her sexually whilst Hutter views her almost asexually. Yeah, and again, that definitely comes... That's definitely a legacy from the book. Yeah. I mean, the book is extremely sexually explicit, and again, it kind of comes back to that, that how we see vampires, isn't it? It's that it's a very... It's a very phallic thing, you know, like... Um, lifestyle choices <laughs> you know I mean I don't know if we went about it, but I mean it is a very sexual kind of it, it, there've always been sexual creatures and we associate them with sexuality um and yeah it, it's you know she is that kind of she's the purest of the pure isn't she I mean and that's that kind of it's in a way it's a very it's a very old screenwriting convention isn't it having it you know the, the damsel in distress and she kind of ticks that box and having kind of him go for it i think it makes it all the more galling because in if you think back to the couple of version with gary Oldman, that 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 at the end it's kind of tragic you know it's just this guy wants to kind of get his love back and with this one with orlock it's more kind of like oh you know he, he has that kind of dirty old man <laughs> kind of thing going on and it, it doesn't seem it, it's kind of sexual but i think it's more in a kind of a rape context yeah. than it is kind of a, a kind of a coming together of two long lost loves but I don't really see Ellen as a damsel in distress. I see her as an, as an active figure because she knows what she needs to do to save everyone. And she kind of, the way I interpret that, those last minutes, is that she sends Hutter away very deliberately um, without telling him what she's up to. And then she lurks Orlok by going to the window and then waiting for him to arrive. And immediately after she walks to the window, he's up and about, he's running up the stairs, and we can see that fantastic shot of him, his shadow, like, walking up the stairs. And then his shadow grabs her boob or her heart, whatever you want to call it. And it seems like she she's deliberately calling him there and she's causing his death. Having said that, I think you're completely right. She does kind of take on a more proactive role in defeating Orlok. But I guess in a way, you know, she's there as this kind of figure of desire. And you know, in a way, she fulfills the damsel in distress role mm. because obviously she's the kind of the, the person that everyone's kind of fussing over. Yeah. But then, yeah, she, she, you're completely right. She does take on a lot more kind of, she comes a bit more ripley and a bit more kind of proactive and kind of rather than kind of running around going, oh, God, you know what we're going to do? She actually kind of realizes what needs to be done and manages to do it and defeat him. Mm. Um, but I have, and when we talked about this film preliminary a few weeks ago, you, you said something about the ending, and I thought, what's he talking about? The ending's a bit, a, a bit strange. And then watching it this time around, I was like, oh god, I think that's what he means about the ending <laughs> of this film, because I was like going along, and I was like, oh, hang on, he, he's dead. Uh, oh, it's over. Yeah. It, and it was just literally like, bang, thanks, cheers, thanks for coming. And it, I remember sort of thinking, I, I don't know whether or not that's down to the fact that. Is some of this film missing perhaps towards the end or was it, was it literally that quick? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 did, I did try and do a bit of research. I couldn't find anything regarding that. But I was kind of shocked at how, I, I don't want to use birth, but it just wasn't a very good ending at all to this film. It's so funny that you, you say that now because I had the completely opposite experience of it this time where uh, I, 
I kind of because I understood I felt I understood Ellen more as a character this time watching it and the liberation that she's kind of exemplifying and the way that she's kind of manipulating that whole ending it felt much more satisfying this time around but I I still agree that after he's he, he kind of kind of vanishes a bit too quickly it's done away with in single shot there's not much lingering over the fact and soon after he's gone then everything is back to normal in the way that Hutter he's he just runs up the stairs she dies we see the professor and then the end it's a bit sudden it's a bit sudden yeah and then you think as well, I realised that, you know, when, when when monsters die in monster films and in horror films, I always feel a little bit sad for them. And I didn't with Nosferatu. No, that's true. At all. And it, that, that's strange because I I was kind of, you know, I, I did love the final shot actually of that castle, which I think might actually be Castle Dracula. I don't know. It looks, from pictures I've seen, it looks a bit. I did like is that, that a real final castle? Sh- yeah, yeah, it look, definitely is. Yeah. Oh. And uh, it's, um, what do you mean? Oh. Castle Dracula. Yeah. I never heard of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's an, oh, God, no, it's an actual place. Okay. Yeah, it's... Um, I mean, you do know the story, don't you? Like, Vlad the Impaler and all that kind of thing, and he was an actual person. And I, I've heard of Vlad the Impaler, but I didn't know that they had an actual castle that was still... Oh, no, oh. no, it's, 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 it's up there. It's Yeah, I think it's just in ruins now, but there is definitely... And it, I mean, it looked a little bit like that, but... Um, yeah, I, I suddenly realised, watching this time around, I didn't really care about Nosferatu. I'm not gutted that he dies. No. And a good and a good monster, I think you need to sort of feel a bit more for them. And he, he literally does disappear in a puff of smoke as well. Yeah. And it's like boom, he's gone. And there's no sort of like you know, there's not even like an outline of him or anything, is there? It's just bang gone, pile of smoke, uh, off you go. And that sort of surprised me a little bit because I, I it, it 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 surprised me in the fact that I suddenly realised that I didn't you know, I didn't have much connection to that character at all. And when you kind of like see, you know, she's she's lying there and she's kind of won. It didn't feel triumphant this either, and I mean, I think you see in the background, kind of Hutter's with her on the bed, and that kind of that guy's just sort of kind of looking into the camera, yeah. and you know, you know, so it didn't seem like it was kind of like woohoo, good, you know, this kind of great things happened. It was just a bit sort of, um, yeah, wham bam, thanks, bye, yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah, it, it it did surprise me a little bit. I, I was. I was I was strangely unmoved by the end of the film, mm. really, in relation to any of the characters. Yeah, and I think that kind of really kind of comes into how I feel about the film, which is I prefer it as an exercise in visual, yeah, um, kind of pleasure than I do the actual kind of the characterization. Which, in a way, am I really sort of saying this film is a sort of a, I don't know, more substance, more style than substance? I don't know. Um, perhaps that's something you know that, that I might formulate over time. Um, it's certainly not sort of Michael Bay. <laughs> sort of, you know, style over substance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not sort of, you know, going down that route, but I think that's how I enjoy this film, and I think how I go into it is I'm kind of looking at it from a filmmaking point of view more than I am of a narrative point of view. Mm. Yeah. And as an as an adaption, I think it's it's a pretty weak one, really. Yeah, uh, that's a thing that was criticised when it was released. It was actually criticised for technical perfection and clarity, and that wasn't. What um, that wasn't correlating well with the horror theme. That it was simply too clean. That the vampire were too corporeal, and everything was too like brightly lit to appear genuinely scary. Uh, but then again, others they praised it for the visual style. But that sort of technical perfection that Murnau has throughout the film that was something that was criticised. I mean, be honest, right? If you were asked now, 
to, to draw up a hundred films, not your favourite films, but a hundred films of which you considered to be the most influential and the most important in cinema, would this film make the list? I think I think it would have to. No, but what? No, not not not, not oh, have, have to. to. Why? 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 In your opinion, would it? Because because I, I mean, we could go. We could both say that. We could both say why. You know, this film. You know, it would have to. But I'm I'm kind of more interested in the. Re- yeah. You know, why? Why? Why do you think that? Why do you think it has to? Rather than you'd put it in there by choice. Considering it's the history of the film, um, it's more interesting in retrospect uh, because film kind of evolved on its own without this being released to the audience. So the film that we know of as today, um, film history would probably be very similar, even though this film would be lost. Um, So this kind of, it represents for me a sort of film history of what could have been, but in terms of influential cinema, not no, probably I could have excised this from that list. Yeah, I mean, you know, in truth, I don't know how. I don't know how my 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 opinion of it is. I think my it needs to evolve my opinion of it, mm. and I think I need to see more, you know, films from this period. But I mean, I, I can honestly say, if if you know, in, in my opinion, I I couldn't just include it in that list on the basis that I think it should be. I think there's other films which I could say categorically why i would put them in that list and this isn't one where i don't think i could say that and that might be my own ignorance to a degree in the fact that i just simply don't know enough about this um this this period of cinema although i do yeah i've seen a substantial amount of films for it but i i i i feel like it's 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 one where i'm i feel like i have i should have a more academic appreciation of as opposed to what I kind of, I appreciate at the moment because how it looks, but I sort of feel like I should kind of feel a lot more about it than I actually do. Mm. And I mean, by virtue of the fact, you know, we're obviously we've kind of made a few kind of childish observations like the carrying the coffin <laughs> through the thing and stuff like that. But, you know, on a joking aside, I mean, you know... We have been criticised for being much too highbrow, so there you yeah, go. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 we can kind of like drag it down eventually. But, you know, that, that kind of scene where, um, you know, obviously he's walking up the stairs and we see kind of his shadow highlighted against the wall. The thing is, I don't know how many times that was seen in cinema before or if this was genuinely the first time. You know, that's why I need to see more films mm. before I can kind of formulate that opinion of it in my mind to kind of really kind of solidify its place in kind of the lexicon of the kind of the great films. It's certainly one which I think is such an interesting film. And it, it's, you know, it does make me want to go back to it. I enjoy going back to it again this, this time around. But I think it'd be disingenuous of me to say at this, this, this stage that I think it's you know, this kind of, tentpole film in the history of cinema no i I would agree yeah i find that there are many other problems that we have mentioned uh throughout this episode is something that hinders me from taking that spot off the top 100 um even though that that list could change from minute to minute but at least on my last viewing of this film it it like got an extra star in my book where i finally I think I finally like cracked the code or gained mm. some very much needed appreciation in order for me to do this episode um, intelligently. Because I'd, yeah. I, before watching that final time, I I was just kind of drifting in and out of the film with interest. And now with that final viewing, I, I gained appreciation not only for what Myrna was doing, but also for some of the characters and the turns that the plot takes. So 
Um, but it, it still wouldn't probably crack my favorite 100. No. Yeah, I mean, if I could sit, I, I could for the next four hours tell you why La Ventura is one of the greatest films ever made and why it's um, an absolute essential piece of cinema. And you know, I could do it on a number of films like that, but I don't feel like I could say I, I definitely couldn't do it for this. Hmm. And I think I, I mean, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm only trying to be honest in the fact that I'm not trying to kind of pretentiously go, it's a masterpiece, but I can't actually really tell you why I think it's a masterpiece. I'm just going to say it's a masterpiece. <laughs> and, you know, hands down. I mean, and, and I, I find that happens a lot yeah. sometimes with film criticism where people say, and it, it puts me off. And I mean, I, I'm not trying to, oh Christ, I realize how pretentious it's going to sound, <laughs> but I, we're not the week to week review show doing, you know, Bridesmaids 3 and all that kind of thing. And I do think we, tr- we try and kind of go for a, a film discussion that doesn't just kind of revolve around and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens. And one of the, what I tend to find is sometimes when I listen to podcasts or shows where people are trying to be kind of move away from that into kind of more highbrow territory. And not even highbrow territory, but a slightly more deeper intellectual yeah. discussion. It's so apparent sometimes when people are just parroting what they think people want to hear or what they think they should be saying in relation to a given film. And the result is I sit thinking, it's so transparent to me what they're trying to do. And I think when it comes to Nosferatu and, and you know going through it again, when I talk about kind of the film's criticisms and things like that, I'm not saying you know, just because there's a bit where we're kind of having the kind of the Venus flytrap thing, I'm not saying... You know, saying in, in, you know, this film's an, a, a bad film because of that. I'm just sort of kind of highlighting the fact that I think that's a kind of a, a pacing issue and a kind of you know, that's slightly superfluous kind of aspect to it. But I think there's nothing worse than when people try and sort of go for this kind of intellectual kind of conversation that they just clearly don't know what they're doing. And that's how I feel sort of about Nosferatu. I don't feel like I'm kind of at the level and comfort with it where I can really sit here now and say, right, folks, this film is an absolute essential masterpiece of cinema and here's why, you know, I don't think I've cracked it mm. as it were yet. And I think it'd be disingenuous if I pretended that it did that. All that being said though, I think it is a fantastic film. Yeah. Yeah. It truly is. I mean, it's, you know, it's especially, you know, like I sort of said at the start, you know, we're so used to in society and culture at the moment of this image of vampires. And this to me does something completely different and totally scary. And, you know, it goes back to what, yeah, it's one of the most original. It is probably the original vampire film. I don't know if there's any before this. I mean, again, I'm not entirely sure if we've kind of if cinema had gone into this genre. And it's you know, it, it's the horror genre. And it's a genre film, isn't it? And I think from that perspective, it's, it, it is a fascinating to see it in that kind of context. I think that is what makes it an essential viewing for me. From what I've read and in or in film studies and read in preparation for this episode, um, it is the first of its kind and it invents many other tropes that we come to recognize in not only vampire films, but horror films in general. And like the film, it sets up that Dracula can be killed by sunlight. That it, The mm. film invented that kind of trope. And I think it... Or, or, or no, I don't see him... He didn't invent... You know, you know, Credit to Twilight because that wait, that really that really bends that convention. Oh, that, that's true. That's true. Um, but it, it, that's what makes it an essential film, not necessarily a masterpiece, but an essential film to understanding 
uh, horror genre and understanding like ge- early German expressionism, understanding where Germany was at that time, um, the end of romanticism and the start of expressionism. And I, I find it to be fascinating. And I did after several viewings come to appreciate it and that I hope the listener will as well. It, but I, it needed some, it needed some, um, I needed some time with it to cuddle with it, so to speak. Yeah. I know it's a new little thing. I always sort of think like modernity began after the, the end of the First World War. I think proper sort of sociological modernity began then. You know, it was a kind of ushering in the era of, you know, women being able to vote. You know, society changed so dramatically. We went from these kind of like systems of government where it was, you know, you, you, know, you had like czars and things like that and ruling families to kind of modern democracies. Uh, obviously, not in the case of Germany, it would kind of go through that kind of phase and then end up with kind of social, uh, national socialism, that kind of thing. And yeah, it's interesting to see a film made at the cusp of all that. Mm. And like you said, yeah, we were even talking about the fact that you know, the female characters are proactive. They're very modern women, mm. aren't they? They're not the, you know, in the, end, in the end, like you said, perhaps, you know, my dam's in distress, you know, I'm just kind of thinking about it now. It's time to kind of review that a little bit because she, you know, she does kill it and, you know, she is kind of taking an active part. And it, yeah, it's it, from a time capsule point of view, I think that's a, a reason to get into Nosferatu. Um, visually, I, I, that's my, that, at the moment, I, I, I love this film for its visual style. I think that's my sort of kind of, you know, how I'm happy to kind of digest it and think about it. Yeah. And 70 years after Nosferatu, we got Keanu Reeves. Yeah, oh God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sort of says it all, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> How, we How far we've thought. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Um, uh, we can talk about the, the picture quality for this film. Uh, yes. It is. Um, I'm going to. It's incredible. And having seen it projected last night um, from from a Blu-ray, it was a joy to see this film in a cinematic context. Because I've only seen it on the small screen before. And obviously, when you have that kind of that small frame um, on a, you know, on a small television, it it does look like you're looking at a postage stamp to a degree. But when you see it projected, this film really, its cinematic quality really, really came over. That bit of the boat, just that shot going up to the the sail ship, Mm. In the sea, it looked fantastic, you know, and it was you know, all encompassing. And those kind of the magnificent interiors of Dracula Castle had a really kind of cavernous feel to them. And it was, yeah, it was like seeing it anew and experiencing it anew, and seeing those kind of those hands coming over her so big yeah. as well, and and so clear on this this Blu-ray edition. Yeah, it's a, it's just a fantastic way of seeing it. I think. This is as good as it gets with this film. The the picture quality, of course, there are going to be some some glitches and some marks, but this is the only it's the only version we've got, the only film reel that is available. So of course I think you're not going to find a perfect condition in my eyes, um, this film, but it is probably as good as it gets and it is it is very clear. Most of the time, there are some scenes that are a bit too grainy to be called perfect in my eyes, but um, it is uh, like this film is from seven from twenty two and it had been lost for so long. It's incredible that the condition yeah. of the film uh, is as good as it is. Yeah, and some of the title cards have been redone, haven't they? Yeah, um, as I understand. So yeah, I mean, some of it is kind of touched up, but yeah, what you're expecting from some something that old. Yeah. And I like, I, to be honest, I quite like the fact that it had kind of like some kind of scratches and debris on it. Mm. I, I kind of kind of made it feel a bit more, um, 
yeah, you, you, it was a bit more made it feel like a bit more of an authentic experience, I suppose. Yep. That's how I kind of I, I kind of felt about it, and I really enjoyed it on that basis. And it had a real kind of you know, texture to the film, which um, again we're in that in, we're in that era of the uh, you know, of, of film. You know, we, we, for, some, for some reason, it's been decided that we just like our image to be clean and as tidy as possible. And uh, I don't think we do, do we, as film lovers? I think we want to kind of have a bit of kind of a, a rough and raw look to it. And um, this certainly has that. And uh, yeah, it's a wonderful, a wonderful print. And I would just say as well, we talked about this on the last episode about music for silent films being atrocious. Certainly not the no. case on this one on, and on this release. In 5.1 surround sound, this was really symphonic. Yes. And I was really kind of involved in it. And I really felt like I was having a genuine cinematic experience, which is, again, that's such a perfect way to watch this film because it was born in a cinema. It was meant to be seen in cinema. It wasn't meant to be seen, you know, in the middle of your screen in a, you know, a small box. It was meant to be seen big and projected, and that's how I experienced it last night, and it was, you know, an exhilarating film experience for me. Yeah, I acquired the, the last two um, speakers for my 5.1 setup um, in this summer, I have to say, this is one of the greatest experiences I've had of that 5.1 setup because the, the music is so engrossing uh, and yes. it utilizes every single speaker. And yeah. it, it was quite an experience. I didn't think that music alone could be such an experience in a five in a surround setup. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I had it cranked up really loud as well last night, and I, I was yeah, I was loving it. And you know, I, I, I liked the music. Yeah, I would listen to that music, you know, irrespons- irrespective of the film. Which is, you know, that's sometimes soundtracks are brilliant like that. I was listening to like some John Hopkins soundtracks today. And I was like, I can listen to these as music. Mm. And I felt like that. I, was, I felt like that watching uh, this last night. From what I understand, this was composed by the German composer Hans Erdmann. Um, and it had been um, the film in the music, it is uh, a reconstitution of the music that was commissioned for this film. Yeah. So it's not an entire, entirely true to the uh, what was um, written for the film, but it's as close as we're going to get. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and they've done a great job. Yeah. Did you watch any of the, the special features or listen to the commentaries? Uh, yes, I did listen to the commentaries. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I, I haven't seen the fifty-three documentary though, so um, I will do as well because I unfortunately completely didn't have time last night to kind of watch it all. But you no, know, it's definitely one of the. Uh, I've, I've got the steel box version <coughs> of this as well, and it's one of my favourite kind of master cinema kind of packages, as it were. <laughs> Fantastic booklet as well in this one. I haven't read the booklet, but the um, seen the special features. The Abel Ferrara, um, Abel Ferrara, or Abel Ferrara. I'm not yeah. sure. Um, his his like um his uh, little spot um i'm not not a big fan of his so i i listened to i tried listening to his king of new york commentary and it is hilarious right he, you really need to listen to that when he is off his rocker really right yeah well i mean yeah I, he has a reputation as being a bit of a crazy one yeah. so uh... um the the other segment on the on the the disc is the kevin jackson 20 minute interview it's very academic but um nice enough um the the audio commentary by david callett that is probably my favorite feature on this film yeah he's a I, I have listened to that. he's fantastic like raconteur getting into Every single element of the film, like going into stories behind, around, and about Nosferatu, it is incredible. Yeah, sometimes as well with commentaries, when it's a bit sort of, and then this happens, and then that happens, they get a bit kind of, they get a bit dull. And I, I kind of like the ones where they sort of just kind of just go, ah, oh, yeah, and then, you know, 
go off on a little tangent. This is certainly one of the most enjoyable ones, mm. I think. Um, the other commentary, this has two commentaries. The other commentary is by um, Dixon Smith and Brad Stevens. And uh, it was also included on the DVD that was released in 2007. Uh, I didn't find that as engaging as Khaled, probably because uh, I think it was uh, Dixon Smith. His voice is incredibly monotonous and right. slow sentences. <laughs> I, I've not actually, I didn't actually listen to that okay. one, so I've only listened to the first one. But it does, it does provide some very good insight into some of the scenes in the film and the themes. So it is recommended if you can break through that academic uh, wall that is up uh, in front of you. Yeah, but overall, I think it's a fantastic yeah. package anyway. This one is certainly one of the best masters of cinema ones. And it's, it's, it's a brilliant example of what you can do with the silent cinema in the modern kind of HD age, isn't it? Definitely. So um, where can we find you online? You can find me at 24framescast at blogspot.com. You can follow me at 24framescast on Twitter. Um, if you go on my blog page and look at the social uh, page you'll see every other way you can contact me there. there's so many now instagram whatever google plus there's hundreds so yeah head on over to there and you'll be able to get in contact with me um is anything happening with the 24 frames cast i am yeah i'm actually in a bit of a uh i've got i've got loads of episodes that are kind of like i've got one on harry palmer yeah. which is done and recorded but it needs a mother load of editing i've got some bomb ones lined up and there's another episode on the searchers which I've completed and then and haven't edited. And then there's, I'm halfway through the third part of the Ridley Scott. There's lots of ones which are kind of like half done and almost complete and that kind of thing. I don't know, to be honest with you, I, I seem to have this kind of like schizophrenic attitude at the moment where I kind of go from one, get bored, do another bit of another one. So I'm going to kind of sit down, get a bit of a plan going and going to get more out because I've got loads to kind of do. But at the moment, I think the, the last Ridley Scott one's about five hours. Oh, so I'm, I don't want to, I had a few emails from people saying they were too long and all this kind of thing. And I, I'm not, I'm not sure whether just not, not to listen to them or. Or just put it out there so we'll see and i'm kind of i think the harry palmer one i've got to watch the the billion dollar brain again and that's just the thought of it just sends me on to be honest <laughs> okay you can find us at moc underscore cast on twitter you can find us at moccast.blogspot.com you can send us an email at mastersofcinemacast at gmail.com and you can also find me at thjoa on twitter choa uh, the next time we will be talking about um, the Chabrol films, uh, Le Bersage and Le Cousins, with uh, David Blexley from the Eclipse Viewer. Yeah, good stuff. I better brush up on my... Uh, I, I, th- those films I've bought, I haven't watched yet, so that needs to be done ah, pronto. Um, yes. We'll do a rewatch soon now as well. Yes. Um, yes. So uh, thank you for listening, and uh, until next time, goodbye. Bye. Bye.